Who's in charge around here is Tyler's message this morning. At the height of his military career, Napoleon Bonaparte was asked if God was on the side of France. The world conquerors cynically replied, God is on the side with the heaviest artillery. Then came Sunday, June 18, 1815 in Belgium at a place called Waterloo. Napoleon not only lost his battle, but his empire as well. And years later, when he was in exile on the island of St. Helena, the broken military genius humbly acknowledged, man proposes, God disposes. And what he's saying, in a sense, that he finally came to that part in his life when he realized that God always has the final say. Thus, in a painfully abrasive rub with reality, Napoleon came to believe in the sovereignty of God and the truth of Proverbs 21:31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. The victory belongs to the Lord. I hope that you've learned that in your life today. There are many, many people on the face of this earth that actually believe with all their heart that God's on their side. Bob Dylan sang and wrote a song entitled With God on Their Side. Josh sang it a few months ago. I'm going to use that again because the lyrics are so apropos, if you will. It's, it's a lot of people's mindsets. He starts out like this, first verse. Oh, my name ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from, I call the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, the laws to abide, and that the land that I live in has God on its side. Oh, the history books tell us, they tell it so well. The Calvary's charged and the Indians fell. The Calvary's charged and the Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. The Spanish-American War had its day, and the Civil War, too, was soon laid away in the names of the heroes I was made to memorize with guns in their hands and God on their side. The First World War, boys, it came and it went. The reason for fighting, I never did get. But I learned to accept it, accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead when, when you, you have, have God, God on your side. side. The Second World War came to an end. We forgave the Germans, and then we were friends. Though they murdered six million, in the ovens they fried, the Germans now too have God on their side. I've learned to hate the Russians all through my whole life. If another war comes, it's them we must fight. To hate them and fear them, to run and to hide, and accept it all bravely with God on our side. But now we got weapons of chemical dust. If fire them, we're forced to, then fire them we must. One push of the button and a shot the worldwide, and you never ask question when God's on your side. Last verse. Though many a dark hour I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you. You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Around the world, there are major religions and cults. And if you get right to the core, most of them believe that God's on their side. So we have to really break this down to what that really means to us. <clears throat> the sovereignty of God means that God is the supreme ruler of the universe. That God is free and has the right to do whatever he wants. He is not bound or limited by the dictates of his created beings. Further, he, isn't, he is in complete control over everything that happens here on earth. God's will is the final cause of all things. 
And the critics will say, well, if God's in charge, why is this world such a mess? I'll tell you why it's such a mess. Because the biggest risk that Almighty God in heaven took is he gave us humans choice. Free moral agency. We, and we realize that not all humans choose the right thing. But God does not force people to do things. If he did, he'd be different. But he doesn't. He's given us free moral agency. He even gave it to the angels. We have the power of choice. So the next time somebody blames God for the situation that we're in, you tell them to look in the mirror. Yeah, it's on us. We as mere humans need to understand God's on God's side. You and I have to choose to be on God's side, not the other way around. We can't stand and say, God, you come over here and be on our... No, we have to go. We have to be on God's side. Are you on God's side this morning? And in your human mindset, have you ever asked, who's in charge around here? Few doctrines have caused a greater theological stir than the sovereignty of God. So within the vortex of this controversy swirls the question, who's in charge, God or man? It seems a question everyone asks us sometimes in life, and that's what I would look at. We just look at two people that had this question uh, asked and then answered to them, actually. The first one was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Most of Daniel 4 centers on a dialogue between the prophet Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. The king was pretty much in charge of the whole known world at that time. He would stand around, stand on the wall of his vast city and empire and look around and pat himself on the back and say, look what I've done. Look at the empire that I've built. I, 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 my, 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 me, me, me. But he had a disturbing dream and tries in vain to have it interpreted. So he brings in the wise men and all the mystics in his kingdom and nobody could do it. So he brought in Daniel. But not only does Daniel interpret the dream, but he talks straight to the, the prideful heart of the dreamer. Daniel 4, verses 24 through 26. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. We notice three words in verse 25, until you recognize. And that admonition is underscored in verse 26, after you recognize. But he had to embrace the truth that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, that it is heaven that rules. Twelve months later, Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled. Verses 30 through 32. <clears throat> the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. So God is in charge of the earth, not man. And that includes Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty is only a designated rule. It wasn't absolute. God had given him that. And for seven years, he lived like that. That's, that's an amazing thing. And I think about it through all the despots and dictators and evil people through history that God could have done that too, but he didn't. But nonetheless, he chose Nebuchadnezzar to do that. And then in verse 34 and 37, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he's able to defeat or able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar said, my reason returned to me. He came to his senses. And at last, the great king Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes and finally acknowledged that God was on the throne and God's in charge and not man. Then we turn to Job and the doubts that he had. You know, it's usually when our lives are uh, smooth and sailing along, it's not bad till we strike an iceberg and we start to sink. We ask, who's in charge around here? Who's at the helm of this ship? Is anyone mapping out a destination? Is anyone on the bridge looking for icebergs? Such thoughts often flood our minds when calamity hits full force. As we've used Job, I've used Job over the last 40-some years of ministry a lot. I always go back there. He lost his, everything in his life, his family, his property. Still had his wife that came to tell him to curse God and die. It wasn't too encouraging, but nonetheless it happened. And to make matters worse, he had his friends. And his friends didn't come to encourage him, lift him up. They came to badmouth him, if you want to break it down into, into language, with their self-righteous counsel. So finally, after Job sat with these oozing sores all over his body, he finally persisted in asking God, who's in charge around here? And finally, God breaks his silence and reminds his servant of his sovereignty. Job 38, verses 1 through 6. Boy, I can just picture this in my mind. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. And in a sense, he's saying, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Now gird up your loins like a man. In today's language, God is saying to Job, You need to cowboy up. And I will ask you and you instruct me, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? On who laid its cornerstone? Throughout chapter 38 into, verse, or into chapter 41, God continues to ply Job with these questions that lead to only one conclusion. I'm in charge. A truth that Job finally 
acknowledged. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel within knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask thee and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the, the ear, but now my eyes sees thee. Therefore I react and I repent in dust and ashes. He had finally come to his senses. He finally acknowledged that God is God in his life. Some of the tragedies I've seen in the last 40-some years of ministry are gifted, talented people that have all this to offer God, but they've never come to their senses. They, they think their, their entire life in the body is about them to do what they want when they want and on and on and on and on. And what a tragedy that are all the, the talent and the ability that's lost over those years seeking other things other than God. And I'm not kidding you. I've seen some pretty dedicated people. Church every Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, tithe, give 10% and beyond, even do stuff within the church. But they've never made that commitment. They've never come to their senses. Finally, Job did. And uh, you see what happened after that. God, like, doubled or tripled or even quadrupled what he, what he had before. But in light of God's infinite wisdom and absolute power, it's hard to believe that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have been, could have been filled with so, such delusions or Job with doubts. But us, you and I, we continue to facilitate between these two extremes, don't we? When you and I are, are experiencing life and it's smooth sailing, we think we are at the helm and congratulate ourselves on our navigational skills. But when we're experiencing a shipwreck, we become inundated with, inundated with doubts. It's how we've reacted to the pandemic. I'm sick of hearing about the pandemic. But I can't rationalize it away. I can't say that, you know what, after the 1st of November, it'll be gone. You hear that? Not so. It's not going to happen. I don't know how long it's going to be around. I try to stay positive. But we have to deal with that because we're living in it. We, we can't escape that. So that's, that's on us is how we relate to that and how much it affects our lives. But I keep going back to this, that God's still on the throne. He's in charge. Regardless, why this happened, I cannot tell you. But it's here, and we're living with it. Here's the human dilemma. We like to think that we are free to rule our own lives, that we are in charge of our destiny, that we're masters of our fate. But that's not the case. We're free, but only to a limited extent. Aidan W. Tozier so ably tells us, and I quote, the naturalist knows that the supposedly free bird actually lives its entire life in a cage made of fears, hungers, and instincts. It is limited by weather conditions, varying air pressures, the local food supply, predatory beasts, and 
in my case as a kid, little kids with BB guns. <laughs> and that strangest of all bonds, the irresistible compulsion to stay within the small plot of land and air assigned it by Birdland comedy, the free bird, freest bird is, along with other, every other created thing, held in constant check by a net of necessity. Only God is free. Only God is truly free. Only God exists without a rival. Only he occupies an unthreatened throne. So what does sovereignty mean and not mean to us? We turn our attention to the New Testament. And we, we focus on the book of Romans. Here's what sovereignty does mean. Paul's doxology in Romans 11, 33 through 36 provides us some, with some key information. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. These verses say that our all-wise, all-knowing God reigns in a realm beyond our comprehension. To bring about a plan beyond our ability. As you think about your life, this includes all promotions and demotions, prosperity and adversity, tragedy and calamity, ecstasy and joy, it would develop both illness and health, envelop both illness and health, danger and safety, heartache and hope. When we cannot fathom why, God knows. Man, oh man, how often have we asked that? Why, Lord, why me, why this, why that? He knows, but a lot of times he doesn't tell us that. When we cannot give reason, he understands. When we cannot see the truth, he is there. Paul continues his outpouring of praise in Romans 11, verses 34 through 36. But who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Sounds like Job. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The sovereign Lord is master and mover, giver and receiver. He is the originator from him and in, enforcer through him and the provider to him. What does this not mean? When we take this doctrine to an unbiblical extreme, people allow themselves to become passive and lazy, irresponsible, and lacking in zeal, as well as in personal excellence. So we get to thinking like... You know, if God's in charge, what's he need me for? And what, on and on and on. Paul goes on to remind us of that in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He inspires us to be spiritually transformed, that our lives are changing. From the day, the moment that you accepted Christ or invited him into your life, that transformation started and it should continue as we become more and more like Christ. We, we won't arrive to where I don't think we all need to be on this side of the river, but at least we're trying. Also to demonstrate spiritual gifts in verse 6 through 8. To find your gift and use it in the kingdom. To develop loving relationships, verses 9 through 21. And to respond properly to government, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. God's sovereignty does not release you and I from responsibility. It gives us, gives us more, actually. You and I are allowed to choose our eternal destiny. 
You have a choice whether you accept Christ or not accept him. But here's the deal. Once you die, that choice is over. After we die and our heart stops, we don't have any choice over our destiny. It's already been set in this life. The deal's been sealed. A.W. Tozer illustrates the point in the knowledge of the holy, and we try to wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God. And I quote, An ocean liner leaves New York City bound for Liverpool, England. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are several scores of passengers. These are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge around on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict each other. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. We do not know all that is included in those purposes, but enough has been disclosed to furnish up with us with a broad outline of things to come and to give us good hope and firm assurance of a future well-being. Where's this lead? Romans eleven thirty six, folks is on the final words to him. Be the glory, forever. Amen. This is what gives sovereignty its substance. It all leads back to the glory. He is the ultimate end. As First Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty eight indicates. Paul said, "Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power." For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in, put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjected to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. Not man, but God. Our happiness, our reward, our blessing, our relief is not central to creation's climax, but that we that may be finally acknowledged as the most high. That deep within our hearts, we realize we can fight, we can struggle against God, but he's always going to be on the throne. It doesn't matter what happens in this world around us. God is always on the throne, and he's always in charge. Why should we care? Why should I care if God's sovereign or not? What difference does it make in my life? Job answers those questions in chapter 42. First, God's sovereignty relieves us from anxiety. I don't have to worry unless I want to. I can lay awake all night and sweating and concerned and scared and worried about the future, but I don't have to. In Christ, if you believe that, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you could take whatever's bugging you or bothering you at night and give it to Jesus and say, I'm going to sleep, Lord. You've promised that you'd take care of this for me. 
And here it is. Second, it frees us from needing an explanation. Boy, we want God to explain himself to us. He's not going to do that. God's God and I'm Eddie. God's God and you're you. Is your faith strong enough to believe that he knows what he's doing and that your life is in his hands? And then thirdly, it keeps us from pride, verses 5 and 6. And that's, that's what happened to Job. Verse 2, chapter 42. I know you can do anything and no one can stop you. Job is saying this. I know, God, that my beating heart is in your hand. And you can stop it anytime you want. You can do what you want. You're God. Now, God, you might not jump through my hoops and do what I want you to do, but you're going to do what you do because you're God. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, you ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I did not understand, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I said in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job had come to his senses. There might be some of us here this morning that have been living some other crazy story in our lives and our minds about God, about church. We need to come to our senses. Who's in charge around here? Our great God Almighty, the all-powerful I am that I am, the one and only God, the supreme true God, our heavenly Father, Abba, most high God, the Lord who heals us and gives us peace, who provides for his children. Are you on God's side this morning? I hope you are. And if you're not, you're only a prayer away. It's been amazing to me as I've studied religions and different denominations over the years and how they have created a way to God. You know, um, there's a lot of world religions that believe there's a lot of different paths that go to God. Steve quoted John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words, and he's the only door to heaven. He's the only door into the kingdom. Now, people have made up a lot of different rules and regs that they say. that. Well, you know, if you, if you come in, take these 15 classes, and at the end of these classes, I'm going to ask you to sign this paper. And once you sign that paper, you're in. Don't work that way. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the entrance to heaven. Granted, you might learn some things in those classes, but at the end when you sign that paper, if Jesus is not in your heart, you're doomed. Billy Graham and his steps to peace with God. It's, it's the best booklet. And they've been on the tables and in the foyer. We have a lot of these. We've given a lot of them away. He had this prayer in the back. This is how I come to Jesus. It's not the prayer, it's a prayer. It's the fact that your heart is contrite and, and you really want God in your life for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. He says, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins. I want 
to turn from my sins. I now invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. The last 22 years, I've said a lot of stuff from up here. Some of it I probably shouldn't have. But that's the most important thing I've said. It's the most important thing I'll ever say. Oh, it's important I tell you I love you, that I pray for you, and I want the best in your life. But it doesn't come close to asking you to accept Christ. That is the point. So as your friend and pastor this morning, I hope we all leave here with Christ intact in our hearts. And if not, really consider that this morning. If you need help, I'll put my mask on and come and pray with you. But that's what's going to get us through life. It's, it's what's going to get us everything that is in front of us. We don't know the future. Lord, I love you. I thank you for being real. I thank you for expressing yourself in our lives through you, Holy Spirit, that we sent your presence. And it's up to us, because like I said, we have choice, and we can come to you every day. We can allow you to work in our lives. We can sense your presence. You give us guidance and direction if we listen. A lot of times we don't listen. That's why we get in bad. We stick our fingers in our spiritual ears, and we don't listen to your voice because we got stuff we want to do on our own, and Sometimes we get skinned up. You know, I've always said, Lord, you fall off the wagon, you get skinned up, and I think it's like that in our spiritual lives as well. I love these folks, Lord, and all of us listening this morning. I just pray, Holy Spirit, as you go to their hearts, they're just honest. If you point out something that needs to be confessed, if you point out an area that needs to be changed, and if you help folks realize they don't know you, Lord, they might come to you this morning. We love you, God, and we give you praise and glory for who you are. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.